Zish Bites, discussing Milwaukee's culinary and restaurant culture. With Ann Christensen of Milwaukee Magazine and Tariq Moody of 88.9. This Bites is brought to you by Society Insurance and Feeding America, Eastern Wisconsin. Welcome to This Bites, Milwaukee's longest-running food podcast with the hosts, the wonderful Ann Christensen, food writer and critic from Milwaukee Magazine, and me, DJ Tariq, a.k.a. The Architect. we got a special show for you this uh, on this episode of This Bites. We have an interview with Adrian Miller, who is a James Beard award-winning author who wrote this book called Black Smoke. Uh, and I'm showing to Anna on a video. Y'all can't see it. Yeah, you got a copy of yeah. it. So cool. It's called African Americans in the United States of Barbecue. We're going to talk about that. He's coming to town as part of this bite's first ever event called Culture Clash, where we got Jason Alston, a black chef that does traditional barbecue, and a Laotian chef, Alex of Sap Sap, combining together for a collaborative feast. And Adrian Miller will be us talking before that with me for that event, part of the Milwaukee Films Cultures Communities Festival. But stick around for that interview. But, hey, we're going to kick it off with Shorewood. Shorewood's getting a new restaurant based on the 1960s. What's the deets on that? Well, the deets are that um, Shorewood had a restaurant called Blue's Egg for a while, right on Oakland Avenue, 4195. That closed um, back in April of 2020. The owners of Blue's Egg, which you might know also own Maxie's and mm-hmm. Story Hill BKC. Okay. They um, were always planning to open another restaurant in that space. Finally, they just announced it. Uh, it's going to be called Buttermint Finer Dining and Cocktails. So uh, it's going to feature modern cuisine inspired by the culinary scene of the early 1960s. I don't know what the menu will look like, but they're going to have a raw bar. I know that. Oh, wow. Um, I'm all about that. Right. And um, they, if you, I mentioned the title, Finer Dining is in it. Mm. And that um, means that, uh, well, one example that is of what finer dining means to them is an intermezzo course at dinner, which is a palate cleansing bite between dishes. So they're just going to kind of elevate that that mm. dining service a little bit. Um, and I guess they're going to have more casual items on the weekdays, a little bit more upscale on the weekends. Um, and they're going to have rollback windows on Olive Street, which is the, the cross street of Oakland. And they're going to have a lounge there, too. Okay. So um, and, you know, with beer, wine, cocktails, um, In summer of 2022, they're going to have outdoor seating, but at this point, not outdoor seating um, because the target date for opening is maybe as early as November. Okay, great. Looking forward to that. Uh, It's kind of nice to see that space be uh, used again. Real quickly, Dan Dan, uh, they have a a, a five-year anniversary and they have it called Class of 2021 Dinner, taking place on September 14th. Um, basically they, uh, they posted on Facebook, they're excited to celebrate this huge milestone with our talented alumni, all the people who worked there in the past, chefs, current staff, and of course you, uh, the diner, each chef pictured on their little Facebook, we'll share that image, will be pairing a course from the original Dan Dan menu. This five course family style dinner, dinner will be a collaboration with both our alumni and current chefs and proceeds will be donated to the AAPI of Wisconsin. And finally, 
National Cafe will be opening a, a vegan cafe on the east side. Ticket over Celesta. Yeah. Reported, reported by On Milwaukee. Um, I'm not sure when it's going to be open, but the location is 1978 North Farwell Avenue with a focus on breakfast and lunch. That's correct? That is what we're hearing, yeah. Lafayette Place is the name of, of this business, and Farwell and Lafayette is where is the corner where it's located. Okay, cool. And some of the items uh, reported will be like vegan brekkie sammy, which features a toasted pretzel bun, hash brown patty, vegan sausage patty, melted vegan cheese, guacamole, and chipotle sauce. There will also be some uh, vegan uh, burritos as well um, and sandwiches. So be on the lookout for that. And it's supposedly, it may open in late summer, early fall. Coming up on this Bites, we have our exclusive interview with the James Beard award-winning author Adrian Miller talking about his new book, Black Smoke, African-Americans and United States of Barbecue. We'll be right back. If now isn't quite the right time for a monetary contribution to support Radio Milwaukee, keep in mind you can always donate a vehicle you no longer need. Cars, trucks, motorcycles, we accept all types. Pickup is easy, and your gift could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. That's hours of music and stories for you to enjoy. Get your donation started at RadioMilwaukee.org slash cars. Hi, this is Tariq Moody from This Bites, uh, Milwaukee's longest-running food podcast. And I have a special guest, Adrian Miller, a James Beard Book Award winner, a uh, certified barbecue judge. Uh, and I got his new book right in my hands called Black Smoke, African-Americans and United States of Barbecue. Uh, we're going to talk about this book and some other things because you're also, he, he was also featured in the amazing Netflix series, High on the Hog. Please welcome Adrian Miller. How are you doing? All right, my man. So good to be with you. Thank you. Um, before we, I want to get into a conversation about the High on the Hog series, but I want to talk about your new book, Black Smoke. Um, I picked it up. Uh, I love it. Still reading it. I was surprised by a lot of things in here. But my first question is for you, speaking of me being surprised by a lot of things, what were some of the biggest surprises you learned from in doing this, the research for this book? Yeah, so I have to say the biggest one is the Native American Foundation Barbecue. Mm -hmm. Because... Just, um, you know, just through cultural connection, folklore, all this kind of stuff, I just thought African-Americans invented barbecue. Mm. And so when I started the book, I, I actually started out uh, just to prove that, right, to document that. But then as I looked at more and more, I was like, well, you know, I think there might be another story here. Because the story we hear about barbecue often begins in the Caribbean with indigenous people there and Europeans like Christopher Columbus coming to that area and seeing a type of cooking they've never seen before. But the type of cooking described in the Caribbean, this cooking on a raised platform made out of sticks over a slow fire, is very different from the pit barbecue that emerges in the South. You know, this idea of cooking whole animals over a trench filled with coal, mm -hmm. hardwood burning coals. So I wanted to figure out, well, how does that thing develop in, in the South? And so I was looking at Europe, West Africa, and indigenous America for kind of the, you know, the, the foundations of it. And it more and more points to uh, Native Americans. So that was, that was a big surprise to me. And then also the extent to which Native Americans were enslaved before European colonists uh, transitioned to African slavery. Um, hmm. I just didn't know that. Oh, wow. So 
how did it evolve? Like, did you get the answer, like how, how, how the Native American foundations evolve into what we know, what we see in the South? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the trouble is that a lot of this stuff is not documented. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm just looking at fragments here and there. But my best guess at this point is that, so, is that um, you, Native Americans were doing kind of something that looked like pit barbecue. Uh, and then European colonists kind of brought their quick grilling traditions because a lot of times when Native Americans were smoking meat, it was for preservation, not really for immediate consumption. Mm. Um, and Europeans added their quick grilling techniques because they were about immediate consumption. And then you get enslaved West Africans in the mix, and that puts us on the road to this thing we call pit barbecue. So this all happens in the 1600s, early 1700s. And then this new form of cooking identified with Virginia first, and then eventually the American South emerges. So were were there Pacific tribes doing this, or were like all tribes were doing this as far as the Native Americans? Yes. So what we find is that various tribes were doing different things. So I identified what I call five types of cooking when it came to meat, um, you know, cooking meat by Native Americans. So one was the raised platform that we saw in the Caribbean. Some people were doing that in the American South. There's also the spit method. So, you know, that would have been very familiar to Europeans, right? Sticking Mm -hmm. wood and then turning it slowly over a fire. Another one was I called piercing sticks. So imagine just putting morsels of meat on a stick and then angling it towards the fire. Um, And then there's the earth oven where you dig a vertical hole. You put wood, uh, you know, green vegetation and layer meat in between and then in stones there and the idea is you light the wood and stones on fire the stones retain the heat you layer with vegetation and meat and then cover the whole thing up and then either later in the day or overnight the next morning you would open that up and eat and eat it um, and then there was also just this shallow pit where um, maybe like a foot deep and again a mixture of wood and stones and then meat was put either right on top of the stones or there was a lattice of sticks laid across the pit and then the meat was put on that and i think that europeans saw that shallow pit method and started improvising and then eventually created the trench method filled with hardwood burning coals and then cooking whole animals over that Mm. and then how did like i'm looking at the in like uh, the book you the chapter really like the the chapter two title how did barbecue get so black so yeah i'm gonna ask that question how did barbecue get so black from that yeah so you know regardless of how barbecue gets started by the time you get to the 1700s african americans are barbecues indispensable cooks and it's mainly because barbecue was so labor intensive right somebody had to clear the area where the barbecue was going to be held somebody had to chop down the wood that was going to be burned somebody had to start burning it somebody had to kill the animals butcher them cook them season them serve them and then even after all of that African-Americans were called upon to entertain whites who attend a barbecue. So it was a black experience from beginning to end. And, um, you know, the racial dynamic of the antebellum South is that if you're going to make somebody do a whole lot of work and not compensate them, you made enslaved African-Americans do it. Mm. So by the time you get to the 1800s, you've got newspaper articles basically saying, if you're going to have a barbecue, you've got to have a Negro or colored man doing the work. Um. I want to stay in the past, but uh, th- th- this brings up another question. So, you know, looking at today and the last 20, 30 years, 
and based off the history that it was such a, a, a black thing, where did it start to get whitewashed? So really, uh, that starts to happen in two cycles. So at the end of the 19th century, so we're talking about the 1890s, you start to see more and more white men celebrated for barbecue. Um, and some of them became quite famous. But the thing was, they were usually front men because no matter how much they got the press, it was really black people doing the cooking. Mm. Now, fast forward another century to the end of the 20th century, you start to see media like magazines, TV shows, newspaper articles start to really celebrate barbecue. And the people who are writing the stories about barbecue uh, were essentially picking white men as the go-to experts. Because you had this uh, public getting more interested in barbecue, and they were asking two questions. What's barbecue, and where do I get the good stuff? Mm-hmm. And white dude after white dude after white dude gets presented as the barbecue experts. And this starts feeding on itself to the point that by the time you get to the 2000, man, uh, you have media about barbecue. And black people are either big players in the whole story or um, not even mentioned at all. And, and I'm assuming this, is, this book, Black Smoke, was kind of the the answer to try to change that, change the narrative, right? Exactly. So I wanted to say, look, um, it was a thump on the head, as I tell people. I was like, look, if you're going to tell the barbecue story in America, you have to include African-Americans. So uh, Black Smoke is really a celebration of African-American barbecue and a restoration of African-Americans to the barbecue narrative. And then speaking of the African-American contributions to barbecue, barbecue is it's a, it's a, it's a regional thing, right? kind of like how ramen in Japan is. How did that evolve? Yeah. Like, how did, like, North Carolina become known as whole hog or Kentucky as mutton, uh, Kansas City as their style, Texas their style, Virginia has their style? Like, how did that, did you look into that kind of development? Oh, absolutely, because I wanted to figure that out. And so um, the interesting thing is that barbecue, when it first emerges, was called Virginia barbecue. And barbecue was pretty standard wherever you had it. So if you had it in Kentucky, even though they called it a Kentucky barbecue, it was pretty much that cooking whole animals over a trench filled with hardwood burning coals, or what they would call a pit. Carolina barbecue, all that kind of stuff. What happens is, by the time you get to the turn of the 20th century, as barbecue transitions from this rural context to an urban context, there's a shift to focusing on lesser cuts of meat. Mm. And when people start focusing on ribs, mutton, pork shoulder, beef brisket, sausages, things like that, that's when all of these regional styles start to develop. And so, and often they were tailored to the, you know, the traditions of of a local place. So like in Kentucky, get a lot of raising of sheep, right? So that's why lamb is so important. And maybe you don't see that in other places. Uh, And so that's where these regional styles develop. And Robert Moss, the barbecue editor of Southern Living, was really the first guy to you know, put that argument out there. And it was very convincing, convincing to me. So mm. um, that's how that happened. So yeah, barbecue was pretty much the same. So it starts as, a, as Virginia barbecue, goes to other places, eventually becomes Southern or pit barbecue. And then later we start to get the variations. And how come, like, is the regions are mostly really, the regional styles are really related to the, the, to the South. But uh-huh. like, how come, I mean, there were, you know, Black people in New York, black people in California. How come, is there a California style? Or is there a New York style? Is it- yeah, you know, it's interesting. So there, because of the Great Migration, black people show up in all these places across the country, right? Mm-hmm. But um, sometimes a new style develops and sometimes it doesn't. 
So as far as I can tell, I I don't know of a California-style barbecue except for the Santa Maria barbecue in kind of Southern California, which is very hyper-local. But, yeah, I don't know of a New York barbecue or a California barbecue, but there is a Southside Chicago barbecue. And yeah, which is t- rib tips, yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that, because I, I heard a story um, on the Southern Food, Foodways website, because I think you're part of that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the aquarium smoker. For our listeners, what is an aquarium smoker, and how did that become a Chicago thing? Right. So the aquarium smoker is uh, is marrying barbecue with showmanship, right? <laughs> because it's a smoker where you can actually see things cooking. So imagine... Uh, a, a smoker where it's all glass uh, and then you've got like metal kind of trim. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason why it shows up in Chicago is it just so happens that a white guy who developed this smoker was based in that area. Mm. And so people started using those smokers. Uh, but it, it was a way, great way to make great barbecue and also just, you know, entice your customers. Cause we often say you eat with your eyes. And so they could see that stuff uh, being cooked. And so Chicago, on the south side and west sides of Chicago, where a lot of black people are, is known for rib tips, uh, chicken, and um, hot link sausages. Uh, as a hot links, are they related to the Texas hot links? Or is it a different tile, like the s- flavor and seasonings of Chicago hot links compared to Texas hot links? I think they're related uh, because the way that sausages play out in Texas depends on where you are. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of times there's different grains, uh, you know, in terms of how... Uh, how the uh, sausage is kind of chopped up and processed and ground. Um, and you've got different seasoning levels. So like, for instance, in my experience with Southside Chicago hot links, I didn't find them to be as spicy as they are in Texas and other places, but there was definitely a pronounced flavor of sage and other things. Mm. Uh, and the, and the grain, you know, the, the grind was consistent with uh, what you find in Texas. But usually hot links in African-American barbecue joints are coarsely ground and highly spiced. Okay. Um, let's stay in Chicago, because the one thing I didn't know, I went to Howard University in D.C. I lived in D.C. for six years, and I got hooked on this sauce called mumbo sauce. <laughs> and, yeah. and I thought that was just the D.C. thing, like D.C. DC invented this. But I mean, staying in Chicago, it came from Chicago. Like, it's such an well, interesting hey, sauce. Uh, first, explain yeah. what what is it actually origins Chicago. So, talk about who created yeah. it, and then talk about what makes this what makes this sauce so. I don't know. I put it on my chicken wings. It's so addictive. Like, what's in it? <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew what was in it. But the guy who started was a guy named Argia B. Collins, who shows up in part of the Great Migration. Um, I believe from Mississippi. I just can't remember offhand, but uh, shows up in Chicago in the 1950s, and along with his brothers, they start running barbecue shops. And um, eventually they developed this barbecue sauce. And the genius of Collins was that he was always thinking about mass marketing his sauce. So instead of just marketing to the black community, he was looking like, how could I get into the Jewel uh, grocery stores, right, which is the major chain there? Um, how could I get this and, and, and showcase it as a multi-purpose sauce, not just something for barbecue? Um, and so he, in the 1960s and 70s, he did it, man. Hmm. I mean, he got his sauce in those, and, and he was in um, the white newspapers marketing it. And I just think it was just really savvy entrepreneurship on his part. So this is going to cause some arg- arguments, right? Because people in D.C. will say that their sauce, their mumbo sauce, 
is different than the Chicago sauce. I never heard of Chicago and, mumbo sauce. That's a funny thing. I, I live in Milwaukee, and no one's ever said Chicago mumbo sauce. Really? No. I got to tell you, I'm a little surprised to hear that. Like, I talk to people about mumbo sauce. Like, what is mumbo sauce, Tariq? And they're like, people from Chicago or... Because, you know, we're no, we're 90 minutes north of here. So you think... <laughs> yeah, you would think people would know about it. But yeah, no, it is definitely a thing in Chicago. And, you know, D.C. people will tell me that their mumbo sauce is different. And the question, you know, what gets really interesting is some people will call it mambo. Yes. Instead of mumbo, right? Mm-hmm. And so... I, I don't know, man. It's kind of hard to sort all this stuff out. <laughs> Sounds like another book right there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, I can go on about mumbo sauce. It's so good. I've been trying to get people. I order mines from, uh, I think, Capital Mumbo Sauce in D.C. Because they, are, they, have, Amazon, oh, okay. they have an Amazon shop now. So I get my mumbo sauce. And you, you, primarily, you primarily put it on wings or do you put it on other stuff? I put it on this stuff, but it's like I, when you're Howard, there was a you know it was a place called Howard China. They always places always ask you, we want salt, pepper, ketchup, and mumbo sauce. That's the thing, salt, pepper, gotcha. ketchup, mumbo sauce. And so you got used to that, and it was always on wings, right? You spread it all over your wings. I dip my fries in it. Um, mm-hmm. It just it just because I I tried a recipe. Someone said a DC one. There's like pineapple juice in there. Some of them. Ah, okay. So, uh, but anyway, I, I I found an answer that was in the book, and I was like, oh, Chicago thing? What? That's a DC thing. Yeah. What's going yeah, on here? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so, like most people think, you know, barbecues is a man's world, right? Um, yeah. But you do you bring up uh, some people, black women, in, 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 mm-hmm. in the world of barbecue. So, talk about some of the major contributions from black women in, in, into this barbecue diaspora, I guess you would call it. Yeah, so that was another one. You know, you asked me earlier about big surprises. I, I knew that black women were in the barbecue game, but I didn't know that the legacy was so deep in history. So one of the best stories um, that I uncovered in my book is the story of Marie Jean, or Mary John is the anglicized term, who was this enslaved uh, African-American woman in uh, 1840s Arkansas who was doing barbecues. And she was hired out. And um, she's what we would call a pitmaster today. Uh, back then, they called it superintending. And so there's a newspaper article about her superintending a barbecue in Pine Bluff, Arkansas in 1840. Hmm. Um, and then later on, she buys her freedom, runs a restaurant in the Arkansas Post, which is one of the earliest settlements in that area. And um, when she dies, the white newspaper eulogizes her. Now, there's some racism thrown in there, but she is given the accolades that you would give a chef of that day. Um, and then fast forward going to like present day, you know, there are a number of barbecue joints named after women. You've got a number of black women running barbecue joints. Um, and, you know, even ones run by men, you will see that the, the dude will say, oh, yeah, this is my grandmother's recipe or <laughs> my mother taught me how to do this. And even in my own family, my late mother, Janetta Miller, Miller, she was the griller in chief of our family. So every Memorial Day, Fourth of July and Labor Day, <laughs> she was the one at the grill. Okay. Uh- running things. In the book, did you ever talk about, do research on side dishes for barbecue? Were side dishes developed for barbecue or are those dishes already made that they just add to barbecue? So uh, it's a little bit of both. So it depends on where you are, but a lot of the stews seem to have been developed uh, alongside barbecue. So in Kentucky, you've got a stew called burgoo. Yes. Which has, uh, you know, lamb in it, right? And in um, Virginia... 
in Georgia, you know, they argue about who started it first, but there's a hunter's stew that had chicken added to it. So Brunswick stew mm. is a traditional barbecue side. So it seems to me that a lot of the barbecue side dishes pre-existed, mm-hmm. but you know, they were, they were side dishes for special occasions. And so barbecue was special occasion food. So certain side dishes started to get connected to barbecue. The one thing I can't figure out, man, is baked beans. It totally makes sense why coleslaw and potato salad are barbecue sides because you had a lot of German immigrants mm-hmm. arriving in the South. But I, I just can't figure out why beans became <laughs> associated with barbecue. I just don't, I don't know. Huh. Were they just, maybe because they put the beans on the fire as well? Is that maybe? That, that could be it. I've never seen anybody really suss that out in terms of historically. Mm. Has grits ever been like a traditional side for barbecue? I have never seen that. Okay. I'm sure somebody's done it, but I, I've just never seen that. Um, going back to the book, there's uh, uh, several recipes in the book. Talk to me how you decide which what recipes went into the book. So I am not a chef myself. So what I did is I would uh, find recipes in historical sources, and I'm like, oh, okay, that could use an update. Um, but a lot of it was just reaching out to people who I thought had good recipes and then having them submit them for the book. So that's how I decided. And what I wanted to do was stepping back and looking at all the recipes in total, I wanted somebody to be able to create a barbecue meal. So, you know, there's some chapters where the recipes don't really make sense Mm -hmm. um, with the content of that chapter. And that's only because I'm trying to create this, you know, a a whole meal. And so, you know, one chapter I'm talking about um, media representation, they're, they're dessert recipes. You know, things like that. And uh, do you have a, a favorite recipe? Man, that pork belly, burnt ends recipe. Mm. And I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because <laughs> I give I give an attitude about what people call burnt ends today because they're really not burnt ends. They've been gentrified. But <laughs> that pork belly burnt end recipe, man, is pretty next level. And for those who don't know, what are what uh, what is the what is a proper burnt ends? What is that? Okay, so old school burnt ends are from Kansas City. Uh, there was a guy named Arthur Bryant ran a legendary barbecue place, and what he decided to do is, um, you know, when you when you make brisket, there's a really charred end of the point that's crispy, fatty, and you know a lot of people didn't want to serve that to customers. And so what he did instead of chopping that off and throwing it away is he would chop that off and then cut up the the, the fatty rendered brisk you know grisly parts and put it in a bowl, and it was something that customers could snack on while they were waiting for the orders. So burnt ends are really crispy shards. They're not these perfectly manicured (laughs) cubes that you see on social media. Because you know what they're doing? They're really giving you brisket. They're not giving you burnt ends. Oh, okay. So we can call those guys out. All right. Yeah. Uh, Um, I've got a couple more questions. So you also, I mentioned earlier in the introduction that you are a certified barbecue competition judge. So mm-hmm. in your opinion, what makes an award-winning barbecue dish? What makes award-winning ribs and pulled pork and brisket? What do you look for in, in those specific meats, proteins? So I'm all about just a nice, tender piece of meat and some good flavor. You know, a lot of people talk about smoke rings and things like that. As a competition judge, you're actually taught, you're actually told not to look for that because believe it or not, somebody could fake the funk yeah, uh, and kind of paint a smoke ring on there. So, you know, you're really just looking for how it tastes, but I'm big on tender. 
And it's, you know, it's a, it's a fine balance between something that's impossibly tender and something that's mushy and overcooked, right? So mm. people are trying to find that balance. Um, but for a perfect rib, there are there is a rule of thumb. So the idea is that you have the rib in your hands. You're looking at it lovingly, right? You take a bite out of the middle, and the meat should come away with a little bit of resistance, but should cleanly come off the bone. And the rest of the rib, uh, rest of the meat should stay on the bone. And then the piece of bone that's exposed to the air should turn white. Mm. That's supposed to be a perfectly uh, cooked rib. Now, if all of the meat comes off the bone, that means it's overcooked. Oh, wow. And so, you know, you have a lot of people describe barbecue as a falling off the bone, and they mean that as a compliment, but that means it's overcooked. Now, it can still <laughs> taste good, right? But yeah. it's overcooked. Okay. Um, and the kind of the f final chapter, uh, you talk about the, the future of black barbecue. And there was a, a thing you wrote about, which is very interesting, uh, which you, you only think about in like startups and tech, is that for a, a barbecue entrepreneur restaurant tour or um, they for to be poised for future success, they got to think about intellectual pop property, capital. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that. Why is that so important when it comes to black barbecue pit masters, black barbecue restaurant owners and all that? Because we know that in the past, whites have learned from African-Americans and then with that knowledge have built businesses. And sometimes they acknowledge the African-American source. A lot of times they don't. And uh, a lot of times they don't pass on that, um, the revenues they've generated back to the source, right? So you've had, you've had these African-Americans, and you have to understand the power dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we know that's happened in the past, and it's even recent. Um, there are, I know of some examples where a white person will go work for an African-American barbecue joint, and, you know, they won't, tell any, they won't let people know what their ultimate aim is, and they'll learn all the recipes, mm. and then they'll go off and start a, a bar, their own barbecue business. And because we know white entrepreneurs often have access to more capital, have more knowledge about running a business, all these other things, they're often, often running uh, to a tremendous success. Well, you know, this African-American is eking out a living, um, doing their thing. And I, I know of some examples of that. Wow. And uh, two more. Uh, one, you picked your favorite American barbecue restaurant, black-owned barbecue restaurant, and you picked one in Milwaukee, Ashley's Barbecue, which is one of my favorites. Why yeah. Why did Ashley stand out for you? Oh, man. So that reminds me of the barbecue that you might get in somebody's backyard, right? Mm -hmm. It had a great smoke, charcoal flavor. It was tender. The sauce was banging. Um, and I just loved the vibe of that place. And so I just felt like I was getting, like, really just authentic, legit barbecue. Well, thanks for shutting out a little uh, Milwaukee spot yeah. for us in your book. That's uh, really nice of you. And then also in that chapter, the final question, in the chapter in the future, you mentioned Kenny Gilbert. I never heard of this guy. He does specialize in smoked seafood. <laughs> and uh, one article, just that line that got me, smoke alligator, which pulls like pulled pork. Yeah. Is that his creation? What is the origin of, like, we all talked about meats and, you know, beef and lamb. But seafood, where, where, was this his idea or does this have a history and origin of, of seafood and, and, and barbecue? Yeah. yeah, so the interesting thing about Chef Kenny Gilbert, for those who don't know, he had a deep run on Top Chef uh, several years ago, and he's done a lot of cooking for Oprah. 
Um, but at, at one point, he was trying to create a North Florida barbecue style. Mm. And so, he, you know, it made a lot of sense to draw on seafood traditions. So there is, there is a, a, a deep um, tradition of smoking seafood. And in that part of the country, mullet is kind of the preferred fish. Um, so I think that the gator thing was his own novelty. And I got to tell you, man, it was good. It was good. Was, yeah. it, was it like pulled pork? Like, yeah, really? you know, because you know, every time you hear something it tastes like chicken, but no, to me it was like it was very tender. Huh. Uh, yeah, it was more like pork to me uh, than chicken. Um, but yeah, and he had a very good mustard sauce to go with it. So that oh, helped. mustard sauce with the seafood, interesting. So what yeah. is your like? Oh, one of my like your notes like, so what's your favorite style of mustard like, sauce? Mustard, the, like the the vinegar base, kind of the Texas base, the Kansas City base sauce. Or Alabama's uh, white sauce, like white sauce. White sauce, your okay, favorite? So, no, no, oh, no, no. Oh, oh. I was just finishing. <laughs> so uh, now the Kansas City style is my favorite, and the, so Kansas City is my favorite regional style because that's just closest to where I grew up. And in Denver, the strongest regional influence was from Kansas City. Okay, um, and so I, I just tend to gravitate towards that. Um, but I got to tell you, the mustard sauces of like North Florida and the Carolinas, those are growing on me. All right. Because I've had some really good ones. Because I know Rodney Scott said something about like, don't you bring that mustard sauce into my place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, like, the Carolinas yeah. has this battle between their mustard. In the same state, they have their own, they have their own sauces. Two sauces, exactly. which, is, which, is, yeah. which is crazy. I'm a vinegar-based guy. I just love the, I don't know, it just cuts that fat just nicely i don't know that tanginess just just something about that but anyway okay so you like the you like the old school carolina sauce yeah i love that eastern north carolina yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. you know i'm glad you know Tariq, i'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people have an attitude about north carolina barbecue and i think it's because they haven't had good stuff Mm. They've, they've had people make carolina barbecue and they make it all the same way and then you add the sauce like a condiment and that's not no. Yeah, the vinegar sauce is really a flavoring agent. You're supposed to add that throughout the cooking. Process. Yeah, the whole process, the based in mop sauce, is like part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. And it gives it a depth of flavor that you know, in the hands of an artist, it's something really good. And I just don't think a lot of people get that. Yeah, I got my own recipe. I developed my own uh, my own recipe. I had a little bourbon in my vinegar sauce, a little dash of bourbon. Nice. Okay. So. Well, thank you, Adrian, uh, for talking to us here on uh, This Bites, Milwaukee's, Milwaukee's longest-running podcast. We can't wait to see you come to Milwaukee as part of the Milwaukee Films uh, Cultures and Communities Festival event, Culture Clash, created by me of This Bites on September 9th, which is a Thursday. I uh, hope you have a, a great week, and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person. That sounds great. Looking forward to it. You just heard our interview with Adrian Miller, James Beard, award-winning author of Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. He's coming to Milwaukee as part of Milwaukee Films Culture Community Festival's event called Culture Clash, hosted by This Bites on September 9th. We'll post details at our website at radiomilwaukee.org slash thisbites. This Spice is produced by Kitty Perez. Handcrafted sonic inspiration comes from the License Lab with support from Society Insurance and Feeding America East and Wisconsin and generosity from our membership. 
Subscribe to this podcast at RadioMilwaukee.org. Find us on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Remember to rate and review. And as always, Anne, stay hungry. And keep the Lord cold. Have a great weekend. You too.